Good evening, good evening, and welcome to another episode of That's Definitely Weird. Tonight I'll be your host, I'm Grindhouse Zombie. I'm here with my buddies Clark, Seth, and Ro, and also Seth's girlfriend, whose name I have forgotten because I'm kind of stressed out, but I'm sure she'll tell us. It's Megan. Megan, thank you very much. And we are going to talk about something tonight that everyone knows what it is, though nobody's actually heard of it. Um, but to me, it is one of the scariest damn things that has ever existed on this planet. Now, what am I talking about? I'm talking about a little thing called a prion. And I know you're asking yourself already, what's a prion? I've never heard of that. I don't know what it is. But what I do know is that every person listening has heard of a little thing called mad cow disease. So that's where we're going to pick up. So in 1986, cattle in Britain start to suffer symptoms similar to a condition previously seen in sheep called scrapie. And scrapie was a disease where the sheep would literally scrape themselves against fence posts. They seemed constantly itchy. They would fall down. They would chew at their feet. And nobody really knew what it was. Um, but due to the behavior of these sick cows and the, the behavior that they explored, it was quickly nicknamed mad cow disease. Now, by 1988, approximately 420 cattle had been diagnosed as having what was called BSE, or bovine spongiform encephalitis. Now, it's called spongiform because the disease that causes this basically turns your brain into a sponge. It becomes a mass full of holes. Uh, it interrupts most of your abilities to think, to walk, to interact with other creatures, whether it be human or animal, um, and basically turns you into a sputtering mass of useless animal. Um, now, the people in Britain... Um, they had a little bit of foresight, and by 1989, they had banned the consumption of certain organ meats, including the brain and spinal cord, having figured out that whatever this disease might be, it seemed concentrated in both the brain and the spinal cord, uh, anything that had to do with the central nervous system. Um, around the same time, the United States banned the import of many live animals from any country where any BSE was known to exist. Now, by the early 1990s, as any good government would do, the British government began insisting that disease posed no threat to humans, um, with an advisory committee on the subject calling cattle a dead-end host. And what a dead-end host is, is an animal, a person, a plant that hosts a disease, but from there it can't be passed on. It's not transmissible. It would not go any farther than that host. Um, however, soon after this, House cats soon began dying in England, um, as a lot of their foods contained beef byproducts, and then several types of captive animals, um, uh, also fed beef byproducts by zookeepers, began to die of what was then known as a TSE, or a transmissible spongiform encephalitis. Throughout all this, the British government maintained that the British beef was perfectly safe, and the BSE posed no threats to humans. Now, by 1993, roughly 120,000 cattle in Britain had been diagnosed with this BSE. Um, and uh, people were starting to worry. The British government was starting to worry. And as the mid-1990s approached, um, Britain finally banned the feeding of meat and bone meal of other animals, two animals, and also banned its use as a fertilizer. Furthermore, they began tracking individual animals and testing any cow over 30 months of age intended for human consumption. 
the goal here, trying to figure out where these animals were going and trying to track any diseases that might arise out of this. Now, fast forward just a little bit to August of 1994, where a young gentleman named Stephen Churchill, driving down the road in his mom's Ford Fiesta, crosses the center line and crashes head on into another car. Now, both he and his passenger survived, um, despite the car being a complete write-off. But a mere 10 months later, Stephen was dead. So, though slowly losing his coordination and even the ability to write his name, his doctors had written this off as a slow-setting depression. Um, after his family demanded another consultation, the doctors at the time were hesitant and hesitant for a long time uh, to make a diagnosis that they thought would make metal, medical history. Reluctantly, on February 13th of 1995, they finally did. On May 21st of 1995, just a few short months later, uh, Stephen became the first and the youngest Brit to die of a new version of what is called CJD, Crutzfeld-Jakob disease. Later named VCJD variant Crutzfeld-Jakob disease, or basically human mad cow disease. So in March of 1996, the British Health Secretary announces to the British House of Commons that mad cow disease is the most likely explanation at present for 10 cases of CJD, and that's again, Crutzfeld-Jakob disease, in people under 42. Now, the big problem here with this is that at the time, CJD was well known, but it was well known to be in people that were in the, at the age of 50 to 60 plus. Now, there's some debate over whether that was due to the incubation period of the normal CJD um, or the exposure, and people were still kind of debating back and forth whether it was incubation or exposure that was the leading cause of it being mainly in people over 50 or 60. They generally did not see this in young people. Um, this was the first time that the British government really admits that BSE could be transmitted to humans um, in the variant form of CJD. At this point, the government decided to take drastic measures and 4.5 million cattle are destroyed. Shortly thereafter, Japan banned the import of uh, meat and bone animal feed from Britain, and the European Union announced a ban on British beef and beef products. Now, at this time, the export of beef and beef byproducts was a huge part of the British economy. Um, and you can, you can deep dive this, and you can see the impacts that this had on everything from buying a steak at your local grocery store to the... Um, economic impact that it had on big companies like McDonald's, for example. McDonald's got a lot of its beef from Britain at the time, and they ceased doing that. So there was a time in the mid and late 90s where it was difficult to get a Big Mac because there was no beef. Um, and once they had to transition over to American beef, there was still this kind of scare. I mean, and I, I was alive at this time. I can remember not wanting to go to McDonald's because what was I going to walk away with if I went to McDonald's? As we get into August of 1996, Britain's agricultural ministry finally confirms that mad cow disease can be passed from cow to calf. Now, so what does that mean? That means that it basically becomes genetic. Um, a calf born to a cow with a BSE is likely going to have a BSE. And that was significant because they knew that now it became transitory. It wasn't something, it wasn't cancer. You know, a, a mother that gives, a mother with cancer does not give birth to a child with cancer. That's not the way that it works. 
And as much as they knew about TSEs and the BSE at the time, there was still a lot of debate about what it actually was, how it was transmitted, who could get it, what the actual symptoms were, and how it could be properly diagnosed. So shortly thereafter, a British coroner rules that Peter Hall, a 20-year-old vegetarian who died of VCJD, contracted it from eating beef burgers as a child. So for him, he got this disease somewhere between 10 and 15 years before he died of it. The substantial thing here is this verdict was the first to legally link a human death to mad cow disease. The previous death was not legally linked for several years until after it happened. The other astonishing thing is because of what was happening, because of what was happening to the, the counties and the uh, various cities that relied heavily on agriculture, the suicide rates amongst British farmers spiked, um, with some estimating that three British farmers were killing themselves each week. Um, and it was partly because they were losing their livelihood, and it was partly over, if you do the research, partly over guilt that they thought that they were spreading the disease to the rest of the population. Um, I find that statistic wild. Um, to think that people that are of the earth and are for helping people are killing themselves because they're harming the rest of their populace kind of makes your heart stop a little bit. Um, as of July 1997, 21 VCJD victims in Britain had been confirmed with many more unconfirmed cases. So between then and 1999, there's a lot of things that happened. There's a lot of bans. There's a lot of don't send this here, don't send it there. We're not going to use it. Put it on the fire and burn it. But after a long and a, many exhaustive efforts, in August of 1999, the export ban on British beef is finally lifted. However, shortly after that, going from June 2000 to about May 2003, there are outbreaks in Japan. There are cases of VGC, I'm sorry, VCJD in uh, the United States, and it was a British woman living in Florida. You've got a Canadian, a Canadian man who dies from it after contracting the disease in Britain. And then we've got many animals, several cows, several bulls, um, several other wild animals in a number of states testing positive for the BSE version of this. And that's the, the, big, the big difference here is the BSE is the animal version and the VCJD is the human version. Um, but we still have this continuous tracking of animals and continuous tracking of people. And we have both animals and people that are still continuing to get this. So going forward another couple of years, we have probably the biggest thing is that in December 30th of 2003, the USDA bans sick and injured so-called downer cattle um, from the human food supply, um, you know, as well as risk materials and tissues such as brain and spinal cord. Now, why this is important is that there was a period of time where if you got a steak or you got a, 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 a tube or a package of hamburger, it might have been from a, what's called a downer cow. And a downer cow is something that is either lame or is sick somehow. Um, and assuming that they can give it one of the FDA-approved tests and it doesn't, te it doesn't test positive for any of those things, they can grind it up and use it as food. 
the hard part is at the time, there was no real test for the BSE. The only true test for it is testing a brain sample post-mortem. That's the only true way to, to, sh to show that an animal has that. Now, sadly enough, for a human being, it's also the only way to test to see if a human being has it, is post-mortem. So for all the people that have these things, if you think about the numbers, um, they're not actually that substantial. And, and we'll get to the final number from this initial outbreak in a minute. But as of January 2004, there's been 143 people in Britain that have been affected with VCJD um, and over 180,000 cattle that have been diagnosed with the BSE. So then over the next few years, you've got lots of USDA announcements. We're going to be doing testing. Oh, we found another case here. We found another case there. And at this point, it's been found in just about every state every state that has any kind of either cattle import or cattle processing, it's been found. Um, going all the way through December of 2012 is when the USDA really establishes these hardcore rules for requiring livestock traveling across state lines to be tagged for traceability. And that um, there's some, you know, cattle under 18 months are exempt as well as are some, are some chicks that are moved across. Um, but this is when they really brought the hammer down. And theoretically, we kind of saw the end, the proverbial end of BSE when it comes to seeing it in the news and we see how people are affected by it. So the future, what does the future look like? Well, the original outbreak of VSAGE, God, how many times am I gonna screw that up? of the variant, we'll call it the variant just to save my blathering mouth from trouble. <laughs> what was found out is that it only affected individuals with a particular genetic makeup. And there are what we'll call the M form and the V form of a really long word that's hard to pronounce. Um, studies of similar diseases in other parts of the world show that people with the M form tend to become ill quickly in the first wave, where individuals with the V form can be infected, but asymptomatic for years or even decades. This basically led researchers uh, to basically conclude and to warn that there could be a second wave years later. Um, and then late in 2014, they had the first case reported of an individual that had both forms. Um, and that was important because now we know that there's a middle ground. It isn't going to be someone who's going to get it right away, and it's not going to be someone who's going to get it in 30 years. There's kind of a middle road. Um, so to wrap up our Britain's Gone Wild with mad cow disease, as of August of 2023, 178 people had contracted and died of the variant of uh, the disease. So that doesn't sound like a lot, right? It doesn't sound like a lot, 178 people. I mean, you look at things like, COVID and there was millions of people that died. So it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's really that kind of big deal, you know, but then we talk about diseases like COVID where we take all these precautions and we have all these restrictions. Um, and the reality is with something like a TSE, a transmissible spongiform encephalitis, A, there's a mountain of different versions of it. Um, and B, you very likely have some form of it in you right now. 
just because you are alive, you have lived, you've touched things, you've eaten things, you've um, you've eaten plants. I mean, it's it's been proven, and there's an interesting anecdote later that um, these are transmissible via plants, and nobody thought that was possible. Uh, so as we dive farther into this subject, and I think this is maybe the reason that I find it so crazy, is that this is just something that gets into you through one way or another, depending on your genetic makeup, it will either leave alone or attack a certain kind of protein in your body that's already there. Um, and the prion protein or the PRP, as it's referred, is basically existent in everyone. It's just, do you end up with this little tiny bit of matter that is technically not alive, but still somehow able to replicate itself. And does it wreak havoc on you? And if it does wreak havoc, does it do it in a year or does it do it in 50? And that's a big piece of what scares me because it could be wreaking havoc on me right now and I have no idea. Um, we'll see tomorrow if I remember recording this podcast, maybe I'm okay, maybe not. Well, is this possibly something that's like, uh, would you see this as like a, an organism that actually, I mean, can you even call it an organism? It's a protein basically, right? Yeah. Correct. Correct. You can't call it an organism because it has no nucleic acids. Yeah. So it's like, gosh, I mean, it feels like it's a world ender if it wanted to be, or like a, uh, a, a genetic fault or like a, you know. I don't know what you would call it, like a cataclysmic fault. Like, is it possible that genetics got to a point where it's like, oh, they created this and now it's just destroying, like it destroys itself basically. So like, this is like a DNA eraser. It's so like the, it's like the, uh, the black goo in Prometheus. <laughs> in a, in a sense it is because you never know what it's going to do to a certain individual. Yeah. And that is the that is the crazy part of a prion. As I said, you could get a prion. We could all everybody here could get the same prion and it might do nothing to any of us. Mm. But but given yeah. your genetic your genetic makeup, given your exposure to other prions in the past, it might. Um everything that I've researched, and let's be clear here, I am not a doctor and nor am I giving medical advice, but Everything that I've read, the research that I've done says that all one of these prions needs is another prion to make more of itself. That's all it needs. Um, and they form chains and those chains form a chain reaction. Now, what exactly does that look like? Like, I can tell you what it looks like. Um, another example of a prion-like disease is Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a prion-like disease. Mm -hmm. And... What does Alzheimer's do over time? It builds up plaque in your brain that slowly drills holes in your brain and makes your brain tissue be destroyed. Um, these TSEs are very much the same thing. I, I, Alzheimer's is described as a prion-like disease. Parkinson's is very similar. It's a, it's a disease that destroys neurological tissue. Now, Parkinson's and uh, Alzheimer's do it a little bit differently, but in the end, it still becomes 
a misfolded protein that results in the buildup of these plaques. That's what it is. And these plaques take the place of your living, functioning brain tissue. Um, for me, uh, I think I've discussed a little bit about why I find this fascinating. Um, and I've got a history of proteins here where we, we talk about somewhere where some of this stuff came from. And, and it also, uh, I'm sorry, Brent, but also uh, it just, just reminded me of something. Isn't Kuru also a part of... Um, yes. Yes, we will talk about right? We will talk about Kuru at length. <laughs> because Kuru, Kuru is one of the more call it modern, but also sort of amazing examples of a TSE. Um mm -hmm. and how it can not necessarily be passed through an animal and our consumptions of animals, but it can be passed through a cultural process. Um, so we will definitely talk about that. Uh, so like I said, I was going to talk about the history of proteins because proteins is a big piece of where prions um, kind of come from and where a lot of their discovery came from. As I'm reading over it here, um, it's honestly kind of boring and is not filled with a lot of good information. It's not, nothing that's going to be super new. Um, but I do have a lot of, we'll call it... Uh, quotes slash anecdotes about what prions are. Um, and to be honest, I copied them all down because they're all fascinating in one way or the other. Um, they all have something either very scientific um, and groundbreaking to say, or things that are rooted in a lot of, we'll call it phrases and words that most people can understand that sort of scare you a little bit. Um, so I think we'll go there and then we will get on to the history of the prion and then we will get on into the prion diseases because that's where we're going to have some real fun. So quotes on prions, um, <clears throat> some of the best. So a prion is a biological anomaly, self-replicating, not alive, small particle that can misfold into an unstoppable juggernaut of a fatal disease. Prions don't contain genes, which is the key here, and yet they make more of themselves. Um, this has forced scientists to rethink the central dogma of molecular biology that biological information is always passed on through genes. Um, for me, science class, biology class, doesn't matter where you were, you, you grew up talking about DNA and that every single living thing had DNA. And that's how it made more of itself, all the way down to the simplest amoeba. It had a collection of intellectual cells in itself, and that was what gave it the ability to reproduce itself. The prion has none of that, and yet it is able to reproduce itself. This is a fascinating thing for me, and I just want to interrupt you for one second because yes. of the fact that I'm actually, like I said, writing a book similar to this Seth knows about. Um, what... In the separation between actually uh, genetic mutation versus prions being able to actually fold over on themselves, like that is amazing to me because it seems like they could not only do harm, but they could do help if it were to uh, be in the right organism. Do you think it could actually fold itself and actually make something like better or make it something more 
impermeable to some kind of harm from ex like external uh you know factors or conditions well we'll get a little deeper into the science behind a prion but for the longest time uh most most research has been based on just trying to figure out how a prion does what it does there's there's still a lot of misnomer and misconception the the best thing that i have found is that a prion is able to exist and able to basically discombobulate its 3d shape and fold over on itself taking a neighboring protein with it and once it does that once it goes from prp which is a prion protein a normal thing into something like a prpsc or a PRPN, once it does that, it is evil, it's basically able to explode in replication, taking any protein that it encounters with it. Now, proteins, as they exist, they're basically on the surface membrane of every single cell. Every single cell has got a protein in it that is a contributing factor most of the time to the cell's health and the cell's ability to regenerate itself. Now, when a prion comes in and it starts to steal those, and it starts to build these big balls of plaque, it just continues to spread because every cell is effectively food for it. Even though it's not actually using the cell as food, it's just, it's taking the proteins, building these plaques and pushing out and killing all of the healthy tissue. That's what it does. Now, could it be used long-term for something that's good? I did see one article that talked about using a prion as a warrior against things like cancer where you could take a cancer and use a prion to basically eat away at the cancer and and and, and basically not kill the cancer but isolate the cancer from expanding yeah putting it in a place where it's basically bubbled and it can't expand anymore basically cutting off its supply of healthy tissue to complete its cycle of malignancy now, at this point, it's theoretical. No one's actually tried it. Um, I, I reading all what I know about this. There's a reason. Um, it's, but, it's like it, it seems like controlled burning. You know what I mean? Like you're gonna, you know, it you seems burn. like a, <laughs> you, it seems like you, a good you, idea until the wind comes up. You mean? Oh yeah, exactly. Controlled burning. You burn a place so that a fire can't expand. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yep. Yeah, and it's like I said, it's a great idea until the wind comes up, and then yeah. everything everything just absolutely goes to hell. Um, so dropping down uh, one more time down our list here, I've got a couple more of these things, and they're again to me still fascinating. So I I think they they bear talking about. Um, now prions are an unprecedented infectious pathogen uh, that cause a group of invariably fatal neurogenitive diseases uh, by an entirely novel mechanism. Now, in science, it's it's pretty rare to hear an entirely novel mechanism. Uh, generally speaking, you know, down to the smallest amino acid and things like that, we have got a fairly good understanding of how things work. Now, I understand we're learning things new every single day, but people have been studying prions in depth, looking at them since the 1920s, and they're still not even sure how they replicate. They have... A good idea but they're not entirely sure and no one's ever been able to get them to replicate in a lab 
They've never been able to do it. They've been able to isolate them as the pathogen that they are, but no one's ever gotten them to replicate. It's not like a virus where you put it on a growth medium and it grows more virus. No one's ever gotten them to do that in a lab. Um, in the human brain, obviously, they've gotten to do it, but again, nobody's ever able to prove that until you're dead and, you're, and your brain is in a pan and someone's picking it apart. Um, so prion diseases may present as genetic, and again, that's the, you know, how the calf, infectious, that's our uh, variant, Crutchfield-Jakob uh, disease, or sporadic. Um, the sporadic is probably the wildest of all of these because it basically encompasses the prior two, but then also puts a mystery into it. Um, sporadic could be, oh, I ate a piece of meat. It could be, my grandfather had this and passed it down. My dad didn't get it, but I did. Um, or back to that, I went to the family barbecue and I had a piece of that great jerky and 18 months later, I'm dead. Um, so it's, it's crazy that, and it, it kind of explains why I think why people are so hard pressed to, to, to bring it out in the open and to reduce it to its baser thing is because it's a wild card. It doesn't often do what people think it's going to do, even when they isolate it in a lab and try to make more of it, it won't do it. It just won't. And nobody has really under, understood why. It doesn't make any sense. Um, so the basis of this is that it all involves a modification of what's called the prion protein. That's the PRP that I've talked about. PRP is a normal thing. Everybody's got PRP within their system. It's the matter of the introduction of another prion that has modified itself or folded itself or discombobulated its 3D shape that makes the prions sort of, for lack of a better term, kind of go off the rails and, and continue to do their multiplication. Now, it's still odd that we have this object of matter that has no nucleic acid, it has no building blocks of life, but it's still able to replicate itself. That, to me, is probably the craziest thing, because when you have something like that, there's no way to vaccine for it. There's no antibiotics you can take. There's, there's no treatment for any transmissible spongiform encephalitis. They are 100% fatal every single time. Any kind of care that you would give to somebody that has one of these is supportive. That's all it is. We're, we're waiting for you to die. There is no curing this. Um, and a piece of that is the lack of understanding. Um, again, insane to me, but that's just me kind of drilling over this, and I just think it's super awesome. What is the, um, what's the connection, if there is any, between this and, like, rabies? Because rabies is also a protein-based disease. It also has a 100, basically a 100%. There's only been like five cases of anybody ever surviving rabies in the history of everybody. So, well, uh, but I, well, I mean, fundamentally, rabies is rabies is identifiable. Rabies is a self, not a self-replicating thing. It has to be in your body. It has to have a host to replicate. Um, and it's one of those things where there there actually are treatments for rabies. Now, to your point, people that got full-blown rabies, yeah. There's a handful of people in the history of time that have survived, 
but people that have been bitten by a rabid animal and been giving a very painful series of shots in their stomach can be rid of rabies. Yeah, um, before symptoms manifest, you can be saved. But once man, like symptoms manifest, yes, you're correct. You're, yeah, uh, yeah. As I under, as I understand rabies, rabies is a virus, and like anything else, if you understand it enough, you can kill a virus. You can kill it. Whereas a prion, oh yeah, it's you're, it's yeah, it's not you. living. It's not living. So. How do you kill something that's in your body that's not alive? So um, and- it seems, is it like rogue instructions? Like, uh, obviously, is it like, um, I don't know, I've heard a whole bunch of theories on like the early virus class, but it's almost like it's this whole other thing without like a core set of instructions, but it's like almost like a roll of the dice of proteins that may may or may not interact with something. Does that... It, well, to be honest, because even now proteins are very poorly, poorly understood, like uh-huh. the function of what a protein does in your body. Um, I, I, I've seen quotes that said that you could go through your human body and remove most of the proteins and it would not have a catastrophic effect on the body. Um, so when you have something like that, that everybody knows plays a part in things, but they don't understand the exact nature and how the action of a protein correlates to the action of any given cell or any given type of cell, or any type of cell structure, um, that makes it that much harder to understand the function of the small, basically inert, not alive little particle called a prion affects that protein. Okay, okay. And and is there, and you may be getting into this, but it, how sophisticated is the screening in terms of the food supply? Uh, okay. So in most countries now, um, we've got, I'm going to call it the most basic of protocols. So a lot of the things that you see today, as far as tracking of animals, where one cow goes from one place to another, the, if you go to your local store and you buy a steak, um, by information on the label and information maintained by the store that did the butchering. You should, in theory, be able to trace that steak back to the farm the cow came from. Okay, you should, in theory, be able to do that. Now, that seems like a lot, um, but at the same time, it, a lot of it makes sense to me. Traceability, especially with the yeah. food supply, is a big deal. Most of that comes from mad cow disease. Before that, the beef that showed up there, most people would tell you that it came on the beef truck. That's where it came from. (laughs) And beyond that, nobody could tell you where it came from. Now, could you do some digging? Could you look at some purchase orders and look at some transit orders and do some this, that, and the other thing? But most of that, when it comes down to a side of beef, it's got a number on it. And that number can be tracked all the way back to the farm that it came from. So you will know the farm that it came from, what that cow ate when it was slaughtered, everything. But all of those precautions and all that accountability comes from mad cow disease. So it's all, it's all like, so you're saying the protocols are basically like, oh, we found some, and the only thing they can do is trace it. So there's not like a, a color swab, oh, the ink turned 
pink so that means it's got whatever it's not like that as i understand it now every cow that is slaughtered is tested for this okay Um, okay and again the only way to test for it is actually there's no from my research there's no pregnancy test for a prion you know (laughs) there's no there's no pink or blue kind of thing yeah it is a visual inspection of a microscopic slide of brain tissue that's what it is and these prions and moreover the plaques they leave behind are when you see them on a slide they're very obvious and so people now i think are trained to see these things so it is screened for um how often it's screened for how many samples they take from one cow i couldn't tell you you know i don't work for the usda or for the any of the slaughters but i know that it is tested for um how often does it come up oddly enough that's the one thing i could not find any information on how often uh, is are things actually testing positive i could not find any public information on that and, so then, and it, you're so you're saying like test positive then they destroy it you wouldn't know correct i don't have a number is it one in 10 cows one in ten thousand cows one in a million cows i don't know because i could not find a number um, we definitely should not have eaten a burger before this. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the bright side, if you're not a fan, you'll probably never eat one again. So. <laughs> I was vegetarian for four years until this year, and you know, thanks after that. I was going to say, that's looking pretty good right now, isn't it? <laughs> so to our last definition of a prion, um, or one of our last couple, um, and this one actually has uh, some good information in it, which is why I think it's appropriate. And uh, I don't think a lot of it's new, but I think the phrasing is new. And it, it kind of tells you a little bit about it. Uh, so a prion is an illness-inducing misfolded protein. Depending on how it's misfolded, the prion may also become infectious, and they often do. Oddly enough, all known prion diseases but one are caused by changes to a single mammalian protein. Um, the somewhat confusing name, prion protein. This protein, in its healthy, properly folded state, is, if not trivial, relatively unimportant. Um, its complete loss would not be catastrophic to a system. So we have this. It's there. If we expunged it from our system, we'd be okay. At the same time, it's responsible for these this one of these numerous diseases if a certain set of criteria are met. Um, so yet, in a highly unfortunate accident of nature, this protein stirs up an extraordinary amount of trouble when broken. When mutated and is folded in one of 34 known ways, 34 different disease-inducing ways, um, it becomes prion proper. When a prion bumps into a normal prion protein, uh, the prion protein shape metamorphoses into the disease form. Like a zombie, now it can create more prions. So you guys know me as Grindhouse Zombie. That statement right there just makes all my hair stand up. I mean, it's it's the things that shouldn't happen, but still do, and the understanding is not complete. Those are the things that scare me. Um, you know, cancer doesn't scare me because I know why cancer happens. Um, it, Happens for a number of reasons, including certain bad habits. Um, But it is what it is. This is something that you ultimately have zero control over. It may or it may not happen, again, depending on your genetic makeup. And if it does happen, you'll probably never know it. 
unless you have an autopsy and by then you're probably beyond caring. Um, but it could also look like something else, which I think is even more scary to me. Okay. So getting past the definition of what a prion is, um, is the idea that a protein alone could transmit a disease. Now, this idea has been around since the 60s, um, but ever since then, um, there's been a lot of evidence stacking up to support this idea. So now Stanley Prusiner, I think I'm pronouncing that right, or Prusiner, um, he's the one that coined the term prion, and he actually pronounces it prion um, in 1982. And he's the one that showed that purified prions can transmit spongiform diseases. Um, and people have been trying to prove him wrong ever since. Um, the idea that a protein can reproduce itself without going through a nucleic acid, acid intermediate goes against everything that we know about transmissible diseases. Because even the simplest viruses contain genetic material, DNA, RNA, or codes for the protein necessary for function and transmission. So because prions appear to be infectious proteins that can self-replicate, this goes back to the central dogma of molecular biology um, and it, the fact that it doesn't seem to apply here. Um, ultimately, there's a lot of scientists, researchers, and things that have a lot of reservations and are very skeptical about how a protein-only hypothesis can actually work. Now, the biggest header here is you can't kill what isn't alive. The prions themselves cannot be destroyed by boiling, alcohol, acid, standard autoclaving methods, or radiation. In fact, infected brains that have been sitting in her formaldehyde for decades can still transmit spongiform disease. Cooking your burger till it's, one, till it's well done is not going to destroy the prions if they're present. See, that's what's crazy to me. Proteins, like, change fundamentally when heat's introduced that's what's so nuts acid boiling alcohol that's so insane i also have too um go clark why does it attack strictly the brain like is it why does it not attack any other muscle or any other fatty kind of like um you know tissue at all in the body i mean well specifically anything that's basically a TSE level disease <clears throat> and the whole transmissible spongiform encephalitis. Well, we know what encephalitis is, right? Encephalitis is basically swelling of the brain, right? Of the brain. That's what so, it is. so that's where the whole family of diseases has come from. It's, it's, it's an, it's an exactly. That's what it was born from. So that isn't to say that these prions can exist in other parts of the body. And they often do. What it boils down to is the largest collection of these things tend to be in the brain and the brain stem. That's where the largest collection of these tend to be. So that's where the, you see the largest impact and the largest, you know, the, the amyloid plaques and where those build up. That's why you see the largest impact there. Now, I'm also, I'm also building up in the brain stem. I would, I would be like, I'm kind of shocked. There's not more cases of like sudden death because of just shutting down nervous systems. Like well, okay, so that's one of the beautiful things of prions. And again, it depends on your genetic makeup. And upon exposure, you may have, again, nothing happen. You may have 
a slow form of it where it gets you uh use the um the first guy in uh, britain to die of it uh his the start of his symptoms was roughly 18 months before he died um and then you have people that and we'll talk about it when we talk about kuru that were infected 50 years prior and didn't show symptoms for 50 years and then got the got the symptoms of this and then the the one common thing that i see is generally when symptoms start within 12 to 18 months you're dead so exposure is often hard to track uh using kuru kuru is probably the best example of tracking of exposure because they went in there and said stop doing this <laughs> this is why your people are dying stop it um and they said okay okay we 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 stopped and they continued to have cases uh sporadically then they went away and then they had another slew of cases and then it seemed to go away completely and again with a genetic makeup you might get it now you might get it never or you might get it way down the road and that that to me is one of the coolest things about this is that your genetic makeup is the piece that tells the tale about your future and your future might be bright it might be tomorrow or it might be 50 years from now and that's one of the things that i love about the prion and what it did and also why it scares the hell out of me i was i was watching this movie a long time ago and the the movie opened up in this icy area like in nebraska and it was like this woman that was rolling her groceries and then she suddenly fell over and was like bleeding and and had like some kind of crazy death out of nowhere. She was an older woman. The later on there was the husband and then throughout the whole movie I don't even know what movie it was. I can't even remember the name, but uh the, the they were basically they were they were cannibals and they were in this small like uh weird group of people that continued some old practice and uh but they were all dying from this <laughs> and uh and that was the movie but but the way it opened up was so eerie like everybody was like dropping dead and, and the authorities were trying to figure out what was going on uh but i think the thing that's most disturbing is like there's no way to destroy i mean i guess they have better screening like you said with the brain slide uh, the the slides of the brain samples but I would hope that happens with every single cow. If you could picture every single cow that's slaughtered in the United States, and man, that that's just scary. If somebody starts slacking off, <laughs> I'm just saying, how do they even start tracking that? There's a lot. There's a lot. <laughs> so, <clears throat> knowing what I know, and and all, with all the research that I've done, I will I will jump to this part because we're talking about it. So within the human body or the animal body, there is no way to destroy a prion. And prior to about four years ago, the only human remains that were deemed safe to touch were remains that had been cremated and cremated by a licensed crematorium at 900 to 1100 degrees Fahrenheit. Now that said, um, the, the World Health Organization has put out some new guidelines when it comes to sterilizing, um, especially surgical instruments, when it comes to something like a prion. 
Now there are, there's a three-step process um, and it's crazy as hell, but it basically is immersing things in sodium hydroxide, um, then putting them in an autoclave at 121C for 30 minutes, and then after that, perform routine sterilization processes. Then you're probably okay. Um, there's also immersion in sodium hypochlorite um, for an hour. Um, gravity displacement autoclave again at 121C for one hour, then routine sterilization. Um, then there's the third, which is uh, sodium hydroxide and a, and a combination of sodium hypochlorite for one hour, transfer to an open pan, and then do the gravity displacement at 121C or in a porous load, which basically means a higher temperature, but open autoclave for an hour, then perform routine sterilization after that. So this is just your average scalpel or your average pair of forceps that or you have neuro, to take. Or neurosurgery on a yes, person. Exactly. <laughs> That's so, why I want to like make sure everybody is understanding. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> I don't think it was actually put out there. This is neurosurgery. This is what they have to go through to actually make sure. Correct. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Are you saying are you saying yeah. even if that like no matter if they get a cadaver or anything? Like it doesn't matter that those surgical instruments, even if it's just random Joe out there just needs to get something fixed in his head. They still do some like, yeah, something, anything. Like that, like wow. Yeah. So yeah. up until my research says that up until about four or five years ago, there was no sure method. And now today, this is what the world health organization recommends. So you're basically taking your stainless surgical instruments and you're boiling them in acid for anywhere from 30 minutes to an, to an hour. And then when you're done with that, then you follow standard sterilization requirements in an autoclave. So that's what they're deeming safe and effective now. So, I, I mean, think about, and I would, I would honestly hope that most things that are surgical, I mean, like I've had, I've had my spinal cord opened up to the world two different times for two different things. I hope to God somebody cleaned it. <laughs> I mean, because it scares the hell out of me that, again, to me, it goes along with I've eaten deer my whole life. I think I guess I've, I've told you guys my dad died of Alzheimer's, and I always wonder, <clears throat> did he eat a deer at some point in the past? Um, and so, but it makes me wonder. So I, th this to me is probably one of the scariest things that you could deep dive and think about. The deep dive that I've done on this would give you nightmares. It would give you nightmares. Well, the, the Coursefield Jacob stuff, which obviously is an extension of all of this, uh, it, it was a big thing in the last couple of years where for me personally, I was like, oh man, so we started seeing some of the Southern deer um, it was Texas. It started in Texas, started moving east, where they started seeing actual, um, you know, recorded cases of that. And I was like, oh, okay. And when it started moving 
know, more and more east, I was like, okay, well, we eat a lot of deer here. Same you know, here in Georgia. So I was like, oh, well, <laughs> if they're seeing it in Texas, it's only going to be a matter of time for migrates this way. So, yeah, I mean, it's getting a little scarier and scarier now. So, well, put it, put it in these simple terms. So I came down here tonight to polish off my notes, and they're still not super organized. I was just a little anxious about this. But I grabbed a Mountain Dew to give myself a little caffeine, grabbed all my other stuff, and just out of habit, I needed a snack. I grabbed a bag out of the, the fridge and brought it down here. So I'm drinking my Mountain Dew, and I'm typing on my notes, and I'm snacking, and I realized that I'm eating the deer jerky that I just smoked a few weeks ago. And I was like, ah. <laughs> And I put it down, Ziploc the bag, and put it back in the fridge. I'm like, not today. <laughs> today is not the day for this. Um, but it is that simple. And I think the reality of how close all of us are, it's it's kind of scary. Like, really, how, how close you actually could be to this. Now, is it going to happen to you? Um, I think it sort of depends. It depends on your genetics. It depends on your lifestyle. It depends on how well you sterilize your surgical instruments. But if you're with a certain tribe in a certain country, it also depends on your funerary processes. Okay, so we're going to do a little bit of a brief history of prions because it kind of fills in the gaps, but the closest modern-day um, experience um, that is not mad cow disease is Kuru. And Kuru is so interesting that it really can't be ignored. So we're going to okay. do a little, little bit of a history and then we will get right to that. <laughs> so initially my research was talking about the 18th and the 19th century. And then as I dug a little deeper, it was basically the 1730s that uh, exportation of sheep from Spain, um, a lot of the sheep... Uh, they were observed to have a disease that ended up being called scrapie. And we did talk about that a little earlier. Um, and it caused the animals to scrape up against things, to be constantly rubbing on like fence posts from pens, but basically to lie down, um, bite at their feet, rub their backs against posts, fail to thrive, stop feeding, and finally become lame. Now, the disease was also observed to have a long incubation period that is a, a key characteristic of any TSE. And again, that's a transmissible spongiform encephalitis. And although the cause of scrapie was not known back at the time, it's likely the first recorded instance of a TSE. Now, fast forward into the 1950s, and there was a lot of things that happened in between the 1730s and now, but a lot of it is anecdotal the 1730s thing was just kind of the first instance of people recording what they saw after that there was a lot more people recording what they saw but a lot of it was not super prominent really until you get to the 1920s and we start talking about um people exploring tses but it's a lot of early history research and honestly a lot of it's kind of boring but getting into the 50s is when we start talking about Kuru. Now, Kuru is uh, honestly nothing short of just kind of wild. Um, so we're going to kind of go through it. And I know, Ro, you had asked about this. So we're going to give it, uh, we're going to give it its due because it's honestly one of the cooler, one of the cooler 
call it TSEs if there is such a thing as a cool TSE. Maybe there's not. <laughs> I agree. I agree, Brent. Oh well, well, excellent. And if you have anything to add, you feel free. Okay. 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 So Kuru is now known to be a TSE, but it's described as a rare, incurable, and fatal neurogenitive disorder that was uh, formerly common uh, amongst the Fori people of Papua New Guinea. Um, now, it's a TSE, that's the folded protein, and it leads to symptoms like the tremors and the loss of coordination. Um, now, the term kuru derives um, from the Fori word for kuria or guria, which means to shake, and that was described by the tremors that people got that was a classic symptom of the disease. Uh, kuru itself means trembling, but it's also known as the laughing sickness due to the pathological bursts of laughter, which are a symptom of the disease. And that's part of the neuro uh, breakdown that people succumb to. Um, it's now widely accepted that Kuru was transmitted amongst members of a Fori tribe, uh, Papua New Guinea, due to funerary cannibalism. Now, deceased members would traditionally cooked and eaten, um, which was thought to help free the spirit of the dead. Women and children usually consume the brain, the organ in which <laughs> infectious prions were most concentrated, thus allowing for transmission of Kuru. Uh, the disease was therefore more prevalent among women and children. Um, the epidemic likely started when a villager developed sporadic, and there's that sporadic again, that word, that we don't know where it came from exactly, but one person got it. It was random. But because of a practice of the people or the village, it literally turned into something else. Um, so when a villager developed sporadic uh, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease and died, when the villagers ate the brain, they contracted the disease and spread it to the other villagers who ate their infected brains. So it got passed down and passed out and passed out. So... While the Fori people stopped consuming human meat in the early 1960s, when it was first speculated to be transmitted via endocannibalism, the disease lingered due to Kuru's long incubation period of anywhere from 10 to over 50 years. Um, the epidemic finally declined sharply after half a century, from 200 deaths per year in 1957 to no deaths from at least 2010 onwards. Um, with a few sources disagreeing on whether the last Kuru victim died in 2005 or 2009. So a disease observed in the 50s because of a practice of the culture carried forward into 14 years ago. People died of this. Um, it's the custom itself, I, I think for me personally, as a Midwestern white guy is crazy. I mean, funerary cannibalism, wow. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I love the fact that there was a group of people somewhere that thought that much of their dead that they did that. I think that's the part of me that thinks that's really awesome. Um, yeah. this, is, this is how I honor your spirit and your life. I consume you. I think that's awesome. Um, but talking about our friend, the prion, um, a lot of the research that I have it points points to this specifically, Kuru, and talks about how amazing that it is that they had this isolated group uh, of which they could do so much research 
And because of the size of the group and because they were able to come in there and affect change on the group, they were able to continue to study it for years and years and years and ultimately say, yes, this practice caused it. Uh, the cessation of this practice will end it at some point. And now, theoretically, this, this tribe in Papua New Guinea has gone close to 15 years without having a death from this disease because they ceased this practice. And not because somebody told them that eating the brains of the dead makes you a devil worshiper or whatever it was, but because there's a pathogen that you're spreading um, and you should stop doing it. And going forward, it will keep your tribe healthy and vibrant and growing. Um, and that whole thing to me is just absolutely incredible. <clears throat> you have any other comments on Kururo? And would you like to know any more? Because I do have more. <laughs> no, I think you pretty much covered it, but I um, also wanted to know whether you guys know about Aghoris, the Aghori tribe in India. No. No? Right. So um, these tribes, uh, the Aghori tribe, is known to eat um, human dead bodies. I mean, they don't kill humans, um, but you know, rather they feed off uh, dead bodies that they find in the sea or, um, and you know that in Hinduism, we cremate our bodies. We don't bury our bodies. So it's, it's, uh, it is supposed to be uh, in a way, if an Aghori uh, man comes and eats a part of your dead body, is supposed to be um, a good thing, which means that the person will um, go to heaven. Um, so, but I haven't really heard about Kuru in them, strangely. Or maybe that is such a secluded tribe that no one's ever... Um, really tried to diagnose how they died. So, yeah, that's that's something that probably we can look into later. Or, or eating heavy parts of the human body and not the brain. Mm, quite possible. I, I, once again, don't know, but I'll go from a Western standpoint of this with Native American, like mm -hmm. the wind. Uh, kind of mentality of like if you consume enemy you take their power like the brain is not actually something you consume it's actually more of the muscle tissue and the actual you know kind of thing I mean, it sounds morbid but it's actually uh, the better parts of the body <laughs> I hate to say it <laughs> And the brain is not really what they want. So, <laughs> well, and that's a valid. Oh, I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. Go on. Um. So it's it's not like they harm anyone or they don't steal. They don't incite violence. It's just that they undergo penance, and uh, you know that it's strangely. I mean, obviously, because. Their their way of living is so different from us normal 
and I say normal in quotes, us normal humans, that there are a lot of misconceptions around them, that they perform black magic and things like that. But when when I say that um, when the bodies go to the crematorium to be cremated, it's they eat the flesh of people or uh, you know who have whose family members have given them permission so it's not like they just go and <laughs> eat out out of random dead bodies that have come uh, you know that have been brought there to be cremated but yes i have also heard some of them pulling bodies from the river ganga to eat it but i'm not really sure how what is the truth in that so <laughs> Um, I uh, there are um, and if I remember correctly, having conversations with the elders in my family, um, the practice, uh, as with other practices, the idea is to recognize a higher self or a state of being for them. So, and I kind of agree to what you said, Clark. Um, that. They uh, do not necessarily consume the brain, but what they consume is what remains of the human navel after cremation. So a lot of um, extremely opposing views. Uh, But yeah, the fact still remains that they do eat human flesh. Well, yeah, like I said, it's like it's, it's consuming a power. It's it's like absorbing an energy. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and, and and I'm pretty sure they don't eat it every day, <laughs> and yeah. they don't yeah. eat it for fun. <laughs> it's not a normal thing, but that's the yeah. uh, it's the impetus, the uh, the idea behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and ultimately, if it's if it's cultural, I mean that's. Like I okay, like I don't personally find it abhorrent, but I think if you go into any culture, you can find an action that one other culture would find abhorrent, right? Mm-hmm. At, at, at the same time, I think with any culture, and and you talked about people pulling, say, bodies out of rivers. Um, I think with any culture, part of what is cultural also becomes subject to folklore. And um, right. and embellishment, and so maybe that's part of that. Um, I think that always happens. Um, that's it, not to say that there wasn't one guy that pulled a body out of a river and ate it because he was hungry. I mean, I, I'm not gonna, you know. So I don't know. I, I it's not not something that I have enough, I have enough knowledge in to be, uh, to be cogent on the point. But I also I don't see it as that far fetched either. Um, so if well, that's that, that in that same culture that's where we get uh in america skinwalker wendigo that's where we get um it's basically western uh native vampirism if you kind of want to you know <laughs> look at it that way that's where that comes from yeah well to- totally off topic but if anybody wants a good um call it wendigo sort of folklore movie the Lord of Misrule just came out today. I had an opportunity to see it early. It is fantastic. Go watch it. That's my big one. So we've covered Kuru, funerary cannibalism, um, which I think from a cultural aspect is 
in a lot of ways phenomenal. I, I kind of dig it. Um, I hope that doesn't say something bad about me, but I think it's kind of awesome. Um, do we have any more comments or questions on Kuru? Because if we don't, we're going to move on to another prion disease. I didn't even know there was another. Uh, all right. <laughs> there are 33 more, Clark. <laughs> Speaking of deer, <laughs> we're going to go on to chronic wasting disease, which is uh, effectively a disease of the ruminants. Um, and that's uh, wild animals. That can be cattle. That can be... Um, a lot of different animals, elk, things like that. Um, the reason that I think it's awesome, um, not awesome, interesting, is so I live in Minnesota and we have chronic wasting disease here. I know you guys have talked about it too. You have it in your areas. Um, I love the fact that it's often called the zombie deer disease. <laughs> um, and it's called that because of its effect on the animal. Um how it will have an incredible thirst, how it will it urinate all over itself and not have any idea where it is, how it will become lethargic, how it will stop interacting with the animals around it. Um, and it basically walks around kind of in a daze, doesn't know what's going on. Eventually it will stop consuming any kind of sustenance. It will lay down and just effectively die. Now, the scary part about that, and there's been a couple of different experiments um, performed on this, that if you have a grassy field and you have a deer that dies of chronic wasting disease, and it naturally decomposes into the ground, and then a couple of years pass, and we have a new herd of deer that come through and eat that grass, those deer are susceptible to getting chronic wasting disease from the plants that they eat. Um, there's been several experiments performed on this, um, and it's actually a thing. Um, uh, several different uh, scientific communities took animals that had a TSE, let it naturally decompose in an enclosed area, took animals that showed no signs for their age, and usually by a certain age, if they're going to have it, they'll show signs. Put those animals into those pens, they ate the grass, and then within 12 to 24 months, developed a TSE and then later died of it. Um, that, I honestly think, is maybe not something that the powers that be know about, because I know when we talk about chronic wasting disease here in Minnesota, they talk about it's usually among herds, and it's usually among herds of captive animals um and the scary part is they will find one animal that has it they will call the herd call it good and then the person that had the herd brings in more never having understood that it might be in the grass uh another thing that scares the living hell out of me and again because i eat a lot of deer so Two months from now, guys, if I come on the Discord and I'm babbling incoherently, <laughs> ask my wife to check on me. I would really, really appreciate that. We'll do. Uh, yeah, so chronic wasting disease, that's probably the biggest one amongst our, our wild animal friends. Um, and there's been a lot of testing, a lot of uh, genetic testing, um, 
a lot of uh, guesses about how it spread and the transmission of it. Um, I think people are still learning a lot about it, but ultimately it's another one of those things where the diagnosis can only be done post-mortem. Um, and I think we, like I'm an animal lover. I, I, I like that. And I, I, I never, I, I, I appreciate the fact that we're always striving for the greater good, but there's also a little piece of me that it, it sort of breaks my heart to think of a herd of animals being killed because of a maybe. So I hope that better tests are developed that could be done. And so we're not just going out and, you know, culling herds of wild deer because one of them was walking funny. Um, it always just, it just kind of unnerves me a little bit. So that I think is probably one of the big ones. Um, we've talked about bovine sport, spongiform encephalopathy or encephalitis. That's mad cow disease. We've talked about variant uh, Crutzfeld Jakob disease. That's basically human mad cow disease. There's a few other uh, forms that are interesting. We have scrapie. That's the the sheep disease that people uh, have witnessed and. And, and seen firsthand, I mean, from the 1730s. So that's been around forever. I think the one that probably freaks me out the most, and there's a couple of variants, but we'll cover the main one, is called fatal insomnia. So fatal insomnia, and I'm going to read this just because I don't want to rewrite the, the, the Bible here or reinvent the wheel. Before is you even this, oh, I, I got to ask one question. Is this yeah, different? Go familial insomnia or is this the same thing fatal familial insomnia is typically genetic and that goes back to the transmissible sporadic or gotcha. genetic and okay. how one of those is often an umbrella for the other ones because there's still yes. a lot of un enough. Yeah, basically spoiler alerted everybody um <laughs> Kind of, kind of, kind of, well, but it just if, if, if you're patient, Clark, and I know you can be, can be. We'll, be, we'll be there in a minute. Okay. So fatal insomnia is a rare, extremely rare neurogenerative prion disease, prion being the key word there, ladies and gentlemen, we've heard that again, that results in trouble sleeping as its hallmark symptom. Well, it doesn't sound that bad. I've had trouble sleeping. Um, the majority of cases are familial, um, stemming from a mutation of the PRNP gene. So we've talked about PRP being the prion. The PRNP gene is that genetic predisposition to something. And that's a big thing with prions. And from all the research I've done, more and more, there's a pre-existing genetic predisposition to a lot of these things, um, which makes it even kind of scarier um so while the majority of cases are familiar the remainder are sporadic and there's that sporadic and i think they use sporadic just because no one's done a 23 and me on that person and connect connected to somebody else you know what i mean um so the problems of sleeping typically start out gradually and worsen over time eventually the patient will succumb to total insomnia most often leading to other symptoms such as speech problems, coordination problems, and dementia. Uh, it often results in death within a few months to a few years and has no known cure. Now, the disease has four main stages. 
The first is characterized by worsening insomnia, panic attacks, paranoia, and phobias. This stage generally lasts around four months. Stage two is hallucination and panic attacks that become very noticeable and they continue for about five months. The third stage is the complete inability to sleep, followed by a rapid loss of weight. This lasts for about three months. The fourth stage is dementia, during which a person becomes unresponsive or mute over the course of six months. It's the final stage of the disease, and after which death follows. Now, clinically, fatal familia insomnia manifests with a disordered sleep-wake cycle, uh, dysautonomia, motor disturbances, and uh, neuropsychotic disorders. So you've got profuse sweating, pinpoint pupils, sudden entrance into menopause or impotence, depending on your sex, neck stiffness, elevation of blood pressure, and heart rate. Uh, the sporadic form, oddly enough, is often accompanied by double vision. Um, just to make matters worse, constipation is also common as well. So I can't sleep and I can't poop. I can't think of a worse world than that. I honestly can't. Um, as the disease progresses, uh, the person becomes stuck in a state of pre-sleep limbo, which is the state just before sleep in healthy individuals. During these stages, people commonly and repeatedly move their limbs as if they're dreaming. Um, while the age of onset is variable, ranging from 13 to 60 years, the average is about 50. Um, it can be detected prior to onset by genetic testing, although this is not always reliable. Death usually occurs 6 to 36 months after onset. So can you imagine 36 months of all the symptoms that we've noted already? It, it sounds like hell to me, just absolute hell. Um, as you go forward, so the cause, as we've talked about, is a prion disease. Again, our, our favorite folded friend, the prion. Um, and it goes in depth here about which genes do what to what and whatever else. Um, ultimately, um, with fatal familial insomnia and the fact that it is effectively a genetic prion disease, um, and it talks about all the different things it attaches to and how it affects things. Um, feel well that your odds of getting it are fairly slim um, if you are worried about it. Clark, feel free to have some genetic testing done. That might uh, tell you something. Um, this is one of the rare ones where there are a few diagnostic tests that can basically point to it. Um, and most of those are, you know, a sleep study, a PET scan, genetic testing. Um, but if you really want to be sure, once you're dead, we'll be able to tell you, much like the other prion diseases. Um, now, there are some what they call differential diagnosis. And there's a, a couple of other things that it quote unquote could be. And I'm sure you've heard some of these like Kuru, bovine spongiform encephalitis um, and chronic wasting disease. <laughs> so um, the reality is even if you don't have fatal familial insomnia where you die from not being able to sleep, you probably have one of these other ones and you're just as well screwed. Um, and again, once you're dead, we will pop out your brain and have someone tell you for sure. Now, the rest of the diseases are going to be kind of similar. Um, I wanted to talk about variant uh, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob uh, disease just because 
it is the human form of mad cow. But one of the scariest things that I read about this is two people that died in 2019 and 2021, respectively, of this disease. Um, and the scary part is that both of them were research technicians that worked uh, for part of a group that was in France studying these things. Both of them had been exposed occupationally, accidentally, 10 or more years prior to their death. And both of them were exposed by being pricked with a contaminated tool. So all the times that you see in a movie where somebody gets a needle stick and later they're dead, that happened to these two people. And it took them 10 years or more to develop symptoms and then die. But it was of Kurzfeld-Jakob disease. Um, and it was only through their study of the disease. And then after this happened, for a while, there was a complete ban on the study of these until they had better safety protocols um, in place. And the hard part with these diseases is because they have such a long in incubation period, again, depending on your genetics, um, trying to figure out the best way to protect people against those diseases was extremely, extremely difficult. So we've covered a number of the diseases that you may or may not have heard of. Um, let's go to some basics, like what can I as a person do? And that to me starts with who is at risk for a prion disease, any one of the ones that we've mentioned. Well, people obviously that have a family history of it. Um, if you had a family member that got one of these diseases, say your dad got one and then you were born and then your dad passed away, you might have gotten one of these. You, you don't know. Um, eat, obviously eating infected meat. Um, and I've always looked for this distinction because a lot of what we've talked about is, especially with Kuru, is eating the brain tissue. The more I've learned about this, the infection rate when eating, say, a backstrap from a deer should theoretically be very low assuming that the person that butchered the deer processed it correctly. And I know a lot of guys that want to, when they shoot their deer, the first thing they do is cut the head off so they make sure they get a good trophy. That's where you get cross-contamination. They cut off the head, they sever the spinal cord, and then from there, cross-contamination happens. Um, again, the thing that scares me the most, given the amount of deer I've eaten in my life, and probably the third biggest way is infection from medical equipment or, and this blew me away, contaminated corneas. If you've ever had a corneal transplant, apparently that is a big way to get a prion disease. So if you ever go blind and you're thinking you want to see again, you might want to rethink that. With prion diseases overall, symptoms. How do I know if I have a prion disease? I woke up this morning coughing. Do I have a prion disease? Probably not. Um, the common symptoms, though. Um, rapidly developing dementia. Uh, we've talked about that. And the amyloid plaques and the, in, the impact on the brain. Um, difficulty walking or changes in gait. And gait is just your stride, how you're walking. Hallucinations. Muscle stiffness. Confusion. Fatigue. Difficulty speaking. 
If you have any of those, see your doctor right away. And then after you're dead, he'll diagnose you with a TSE. So that should be fine. Diagnosis. How are these tests or how are these diseases diagnosed? Well, because most diagnoses and most of the tests don't really get started until people are really experiencing some pretty profound neurological problems, um, you can have an MRI, that's a scan of your brain, obviously, and that often will show the impact of the spongiform part of this, where the brain is being slowly turned into basically a giant piece of Swiss cheese. Uh, supposedly, an MRI will show that. Now, given that we know that Alzheimer's can cause that, Parkinson's can cause that, a myriad of other conditions can cause that, it's not always going to say, yes, you had a TSE. Um, samples of fluid from the spinal cord, these like a lumbar puncture, supposedly these are better because you might actually get some prions out of the fluid. Um, Will they show the plaques? No, but with some very sophisticated, expensive, and when I say expensive, a something nobody can afford, they can isolate the prions and tell you whether you have a prion disease. Now, nobody does it and no insurance company covers it because if you do, you're already dead, so it doesn't make any difference anyway. Um, electroencephalogram, which analyzes brain waves. This painless test um, requires placing electrodes on the scalp and often can locate misfiring brain waves. Now, again, because there's a hundred other things that can cause that, not the best diagnostic tool. Um, blood tests, obviously, but those do next to nothing. And then neurological and visual exams to check for nerve damage and vision loss. But again, because there's so many different things that can cause those, we're still back to, we'll pop out your brain once you're dead, and then we'll tell your family what you died of. So how are prion diseases treated? Well, they can't be cured, but there are certain medicines, and we've seen this with Alzheimer's, that can slow their progress. Um, the medical management focuses on keeping people with these diseases as safe and comfortable as possible, despite progressive and debilitating symptoms. Um, so, as we've discussed, if you get a prion disease, make sure your will's filled out, because you're done. Can these diseases be prevented? Now, we've talked about cleaning and sterilization, um, how the the rules and the suggestions for sterilization have changed in the last few years. Um, so that part's important. Um, but there's also some really basic and kind of like, well, that makes sense. Like, if you have or you think you might have any one of these um, diseases, whether it's CJD, um, if you get Kuru, um, if, if any of these diseases... Obviously, don't donate your organs or tissue, uh, including corneas, and let people know, especially in your, you know, quote-unquote last wishes. Um, and then newer regulations that govern the handling and feeding of cows are also trying to prevent and help the prevent the spread of the prion diseases. Now, living with these diseases, uh, there's a hard reality here. As the disease progresses everybody ends up needing help taking care of themselves and most people end up in some sort of a facility where their needs can be basically tended to around the clock how how contagious is this if the person like i don't know if you don't get like an a, a, a needle in that person and that accidentally stabs you like if someone's just in a nursing home and has this well the reality of this is it's not a bloodborne disease okay yeah. 
So it's not in your blood. There is limited information that says in the perfect circumstances, it could be aerosol born. Mm. Um, but that's more, I take an infected brain and I put it in a squirt gum somehow and I squirt it into the air. I mean, who would do that, right? Right. The The people that have been, you know, infected as an occupational, call it the quote unquote needle stick, had an instrument that had been in the brain of a of an animal with that. So it was right there. So bloodborne, you're not going to get it. Now, I will tell you that the Food and Drug Administration of the United States, because of mad cow disease, did ban the import of, this is going to sound terrible, but of foreign sperm for sperm implantation because of worry of things like mad cow disease. Mad cow disease was at the top of their list when they decided to ban that. Uh, so if you wanted to go to Scandinavia now and get some semen from a six foot six blonde yeah. guy to make sure you, you can't anymore. And it's because of mad cow disease that you can't. Yeah. Um, despite that, there is absolutely zero evidence that any of the TSEs are sexually transmitted. So it is short of the sporadic and that's, the development and i think sporadic is a term for we don't fucking know that's what sporadic yeah. is the coverall term for versus genetic my dad had it or the obvious i ate a human brain or i ate an animal that was infected so i think this the sporadic is just the catch-all term i'm really regretting drinking out of that skull cup now uh clark <laughs> <laughs> That's so, all on you, bro. That's all on you. Hey, if if something <laughs> happens, you guys know. He maybe kissed one. Oh, yeah. oh. That, was a, that was a whole separate thing. <laughs> okay, that makes you an accessory okay. to murder. I was gonna, I was gonna say, it's been, <laughs> been nice knowing you, Megan. Sorry. <laughs> so, key points before we break into a little bit of pop culture and just some kind of basic points about this. Prion diseases are extremely rare. Extremely rare. Um, it's it, it doesn't even pop into the top 1,000 of things that kill people in the United States every year. It's not even there. Um, it, you're more likely to get hit by lightning than you are to get prion disease. Um, the other side of that coin is prion diseases are always fatal. There's no cure. There's no treatment. Like I said before, any treatment is supportive. It's palliative care. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, all you can do is try to protect yourself from it. And to do that, you need to know something about transmission. So it's been widely recognized that prion diseases can be transmitted in one of three different ways. Acquired, familial, or sporadic. And that's the... I ate the meat, it's genetic, my dad had it, or the sporadic, we don't fucking know. Um, uh, it's often assumed that the disease form directly interacts with a normal form to make it rearrange its structure. So the there's been an idea put forth that we have the protein X hypothesis that is as, as an yet identified cellular protein, protein X, that enables the conversion of the PRPC, that's the normal one, to the PRPSC, which is the abnormal one, um, by bringing a molecule of each into a complex. Now, there's a lot of people that believe this. There's a lot of people that don't. Um, 
the research is so far inconclusive and the reality is from a pharmacy standpoint or a medical standpoint, there's probably little to no money in this, so nobody really researches it. Um, ultimately, the primary method is through ingestion, and that's eating um, either contaminated brain or brain stem or through eating a piece of meat that has had the fluids from those contaminated things deposited on it, and that goes back to the poor butchering that we talked about. Um, that said, it can be transmitted through urine, saliva, and pretty much any other bodily fluid. Um, they also can linger in soil by binding to clay and other minerals. So that goes back to plants can get it. Um, there are a couple of theories about prions being able to infect versus various animal scats and manures. Um, the scary part of that is that they have proved that the prions can exist in manure. Um, and since manure is present in many areas surrounding water reservoirs, and as many as well as many that are used on crop fields, it does raise the possibility of widespread transmission through the waterways. Um, now, in January of uh, 2011, uh, researchers had discovered prions spreading through airborne transmission on aerosol particles. Um, in an animal testing experiment focusing on the scrapie infection through laboratory mice. The preliminary evidence supported the notion that prions can be transmitted uh, through the use of, this is going to be odd, but urine-derived human menopausal gastrotropin um, administered for treatment for infertility, which is widely used uh, when it comes to treating infertility. So if, if you used those human menopausal cells to help treat infertility, and there was a prion present, it's possible to pass it on through that. Now that it's possible, there aren't any existing cases of it. I dug and dug and dug and could not find a single existing case where it happened through treatment of infertility. They're just saying it's possible. So, okay, when you say uh, going back to the grass and soil and stuff, like if an animal infected uh, uh, dies, whatever, the other animals come and eat the grass, I'm assuming the prions would be in the water within the plant and the soil and that, that kind of thing, since we're not really talking about an infection. Well, your timing is perfect. So in 2015, researchers at the University of Texas Health Center at Houston found that plants can be a vector for prions. Uh, while when researching fed hamsters grass that grew on a ground where a deer had died with chronic wasting disease was buried, the hamsters became ill with chronic wasting disease, suggesting that prions can bind to plants, which then take them up to the leaf and stem structure where they can be eaten by herbivores, thus completing the cycle. Um, it is thus possible that a progressively accumulating number of prions in the environment. So a deer dies, it decomposes into the ground, the ground picks up the the neutrals or the, the nutrients, the minerals, and as we talked about earlier, things that get stuck in various minerals in the ground and the various clays. Like I live here in Minnesota, we've got a lot of clay. Mm -hmm. Great. It, uh, one more thing that's just going to keep keep me from not sleeping tonight. If like I, I haven't slept in like three days because of this research, <laughs> so I hope you guys appreciate this shit. Are you, um, yeah. Yeah. Are you sure that's not fatal insomnia? Hmm. <laughs> well, I'll, well, I'll tell you what, Clark. If it is, I'm going to ping your phone 
once every 15 minutes for the next six to 36 months. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So just, just enjoy it. Okay. <laughs> um, so we talked a little bit about um, sterilization and the fun part about sterilization is that generally when you sterilize something, what you're doing is neutralizing the nucleic acid that it uses to build more of itself because prions um, are infectious by their normal versions of a protein. Sterilizing uh, prions requires the denaturation of the protein to a state in which the molecule is no longer able to induce abnormal folding. In general, prions are quite resistant to proteases, proteases, heat, ionizing radiation, formaldehyde treatments, and most of these things don't actually, quote-unquote, kill them as they're not alive. They render them ineffective. However, this ineffectivity can be affected by the environment, chemicals around it, and some prions have been proven while in an ineffective or dormant state, they can be uh, where's the word here? Uh, they can be renaturized and once again become infectious in the right environment. So they can be effectively neutralized, made dormant, but then in the right environment, they can effectively wake up. So again, if you wanted something that makes your butthole pucker a little bit, think about that. Something that isn't alive can be neutralized but just sit and wait. And if the environment is correct, um, it can come back. Now, nobody has been able to achieve that in the lab, but they have seen it be achieved in nature. So again, the whole making prions reproduce themselves in a lab has been highly unsuccessful. No one's ever been able to do it. Well, but while being monitored in nature, They've seen the prions replicate themselves, and they've also basically seen the prions Frankenstein themselves back to whatever they call a life. Again, to me, incredible. Something that isn't alive can replicate itself, can put itself into a forced hibernation if it needs to, and then come back when the time is right. This is like the greatest setup for uh, thawing out the permafrost movie. Oh, but dude. Yeah, like who knows what's under that ice. As a video game nerd, it makes me think about like Parasite Eve, but that's about mitochondria and not about proteins in your body. But same thing. Like, if what if they just decided one day to wake up and (laughs) you know (laughs) say, "Hey, we we run your body, you don't." (laughs) So now that we have immersed ourselves in the history and the science that is prions and ultimately acknowledging that nobody fully understands a prion or fully understands how it works. There's a lot of conjecture, a minimal amount of research and some more or less accepted. That's probably how it works. Now, when it comes to the proliferation of the prion, there's many, many accepted forms of transmission many accepted diseases that are caused. Um, And that's all scary. And honestly, when I get off here tonight, I'm probably just going to sit and cry and suck my thumb for a while. But keeping things fun, let's talk about prions in pop culture. So as I told you guys before we recorded, my first experience with 
a prion and pop culture and really getting to understand what it was, was through a series of books by an author named Jonathan Mawberry. Um, the best ones, honestly, are Dead of Night and Fall of Night. If you, if you need a, a book that is riddled with character, riddled with what you might call garbage science just because it's fun, but also zombies, read those two books because they are very, very fun. Um, uh, they're popcorn books, to, to be sure, but they're fun to read. If you can do them on Audible while you're doing the rest of your life, even better, because they're just fun to listen to. Um, but so check those out. Again, Jonathan Mawberry, he's done lots of books. He's got the From Dust Till Dawn series. Those are not From Dust Till Dawn, from uh, Rotten Ruin, Rotten Ruin series. And they're more young adult books, but they're still fun, uh, still kind of under the same pretense. Uh, when it comes to movies, I'm sure everyone here has seen the movie Zombieland, right? Okay. Well, Zombieland, if you follow, if you listen, Zombieland is based on mad cow disease. That's what it's based on. Um, and one of my favorite zombie movies of all time, just something you can't help but like. It's just kind of great. The most fun, I think, pop culture reference to the prion um, is in what is basically a video game, but it's more of a tablet slash phone video game called Plague Incorporated. I'm not sure if anyone's ever played Plague Incorporated. When you play Plague Incorporated, your goal is to kill the world and to kill the world as fast as you can. Um, now, I've played that with viruses, bacteria. They even have a mode where you can try to kill the world with zombies. As it turns out, and a lot of this makes sense, trying to kill the world with the prion is pretty much the hardest level in the game. It takes a lot of thought and a lot of perfect things to happen to kill the world with the prion. Now, it can be done, but it's really difficult. Um, but that also tells you something about the prion, which is maybe one of the things that takes just the tiniest bit of fear away from this little not alive, somehow replicating, turns you into a drilling idiot, and then you die because you haven't slept in six months. Um, if you're if you're looking for a fun little game to play, by all means, check out Plague Incorporated. I think the last time I checked through my app, it might have been 99 cents or something. It's not a, a huge expenditure. But if you're having a bad day, it's a really fun way to kill the world just because you can. So getting to the end of this, I wanted to... There was a lot of sources that went into this, and I wanted to give most of the sources of credit so people know that I'm not directly ripping off something that somebody else said. So my main sources are Scientific America, uh, obviously Wikipedia, uh, Learn.Genetics, uh, the National Library of Medicine, um, NPR, the CDC, and the Center for Food Safety. All of this information comes from one of those sources in one form or another. Um, so uh, after talking for almost two hours straight, um, everyone here, give me, give me an idea of your perception of the prion. All right. Well, I have, a, it's kind of a question, but when you were saying that there's basically like three genetic types to watch out for in terms of people or hosts or whatever you, how, I know this thing isn't alive, but all right. So you got, um, people that either are going to get it immediately or, or close to it. You have people that don't have to worry at all, and then you have people that are um, uh, going to get it way down the line. 
since this thing is like so it just by default so rare could it be that most people are genetically built to like this not be a thing or 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 i mean are there tests that can say whether or not your genetic makeup is susceptible to this that or the other so there are genetic tests but it's a genetic test that you likely wouldn't take unless somebody in your family was already suffering from a prion disease. Like you wouldn't know to take it. You wouldn't be like, I should rush out and take that genetic test. Yeah. Now, knowing what they know about the two, the two forms, um, mm -hmm. when it comes to, um, the variant of, uh, Crutzfeld Jakob disease, and that's the M and the V's, um, with those people, the the big differentiator was the onset of symptoms. Um, okay. The people that were of the M class got ill very quickly and generally succumb, succumb pretty quickly. And we're talking like 12 to 18 months. Now, the V factors in that sometimes didn't have any symptoms for decades. Um, yeah. But what it is exactly about their genetic makeup that m versus v is only a small portion of the genetic makeup so it's it's the same as people identifying a predisposition to breast cancer so why would somebody identify that because it's prevalent in our society so it makes sense that people put money and research into identifying a gene that says i may or may not the hard part with the prion diseases is they're not prevalent. So going into the late 80s and the early 90s and almost into the 2000s, they were throwing a lot of money at research. And that's when most of the primary discoveries were made about it. But then as soon as it wasn't on the news anymore, it got unpopular and the money dried up. So the research effectively stopped. Okay. What we have, what we have now that we know about it, it has been general disease reporting, both from the CDC, from the World Health Organization, and through a couple of other. There's one in Japan that I cannot remember the name of because it's got a weird acronym, and then there's one in France too that has been working on, you know, these. But it's not that there's teams of a hundred people working on this. There's a couple, and and for the ones in France, you can see how that worked out for those two people. <laughs> they, they they worked on it, got stuck, and ten years later, were dead. So, um, but it's not happening, you know. I know in Minnesota, anecdotally, I know of enough people that hunt and do things like that where I've heard of people that have gotten this. Do I personally know any of them? Nope, I've never met one, you know. So I think most of it's anecdotal, um, but. It's like anything else until it becomes widespread and it's ha it's happening and we're seeing it. There's there's no money for research. Um, you know, we we all know that curing a disease is not profitable. Treating the symptoms is profitable. That's what drug companies yeah. do. Um, True. But I'll but I'll but I'll say it again. Like with my dad who died of Alzheimer's. All of that fit Alzheimer's, but a lot of that same stuff fits. Uh, Crutchfield Jakob disease. So how do I know? There was no autopsy. I don't know. You know, and my dad growing up, I know he ate a lot of deer growing up. He he, he grew up in the basically in the flats in North Dakota. They ate a lot of deer growing up. I don't know. Could be. 
Well, it's extremely disturbing. That's for sure. <laughs> it is. And for me, the takeaway is that it is the prime diseases are, you know, one of the most terrifying of medical conditions. And, well, once the symptoms kind of manifest themselves, and the, one of the symptoms being hallucinations, that's fucked up. You know, it is too late and there is a literal degradation of the brain that sets in. So that's that's scary and that's sad at the same time. Well, it always makes me wonder for people that you hear about, say, on the news that went bonkers and did something and they were schizophrenic or they had some other mental disorder. It's like... Does, any, does anybody bother after, you know, they're they're gone to to test and to see if uh, that's a really good point. Maybe it was something else. Well, the I guy, mean, the um, the Kent State shooting back in the '60s uh, wasn't Charles Whitman. Yep. He actually his note he left was, "Examine my brain after I'm dead." Yeah. Like wow. yeah, and he went on a shooting spree. So. Well, and that's, I think, one of the rare cases where somebody has a moment of lucidity and knows that something's wrong. And the best that they can offer is study me when I'm gone, so maybe you can prevent this later. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I, but, but I, yeah. I, I do often think about people that when you see people like, you know, the guy in the street that won't put the knife down and the cops shoot him or the guy that jumps off a bridge. You know, and to Rose's point about hallucinations and what that can do to your mind, you know, does anybody bother? Is there any protocol to test for some of these things to see if maybe that's what it is? And 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 maybe that's what it is, and maybe we can bring it more into the forefront. I, I don't know, but I just I I I often wonder because it, the hallucinations, and that's kind of one of the things that scares me the most too, is is not, you know, I mean, and, and this is going to sound dumb, and I'm not. Th th this is not a a public service announcement, but it's it's one of the reasons I don't do drugs is because I don't want to ever think that I'm not in control of what's happening. Like mm -hmm. I always, I maybe I'm a control freak, whatever else, but I don't ever want to think that I did something and it wasn't of my own free will, that it was a, like a different part of me that did something. I don't ever want to be in that place because I don't want to be, I don't want to have the guilt that could go along with an action that ultimately wouldn't be something that I would normally do. Um, but then when thinking of this in context of my brain is being eaten alive by a misfolded protein that's out of control that can't be killed because I ate a hamburger <laughs> or so, I mean, that freaks me. It freaks me out. Um, and it's, I just, I wonder as we go forward, if they're, because the research that I did, testing for this is not part of a normal autopsy. It, this, it doesn't happen. Somebody dies, it's like my, my father died of Alzheimer's, okay? And symptomatically, that's what he had. Um, his death certificate said natural causes, Alzheimer's, and then all the other medical conditions that he had. But he wasn't autopsied. Nobody, nobody took a piece of his brain and studied it, you know? So, like, I always often wonder, well, so how do you actually know? 
because the symptoms pointed to that. That's so that's how you make a determination. And so it makes me wonder for something like this, like how many people and and let's be honest, it might be one in a thousand, but if it's one in a thousand and a million people die in this country every year, maybe it's more predominant than people know. But it's not tested for, so how will we ever know? Or the people that even die before symptoms manifest. So like Hypothetically, okay, you had a father who, uh, you know, dies of Alzheimer's. It's not, autopsy doesn't, you know, go into any of that. Say you died early, but you already had kids. You're not autopsied, and therefore you never had symptoms manifest. And now you have kids that are younger, and they're time bombs at that point. Very well could be, and you have no idea. Yeah. And that's it, the crazy. So, yeah. Well, but that goes back to the point about like the breast cancer gene, like, like ferreting out the breast cancer gene makes sense because breast cancer is so prevalent in our society. I mean, everybody here knows somebody that's had breast cancer. Everybody. Um, if you if you say that you don't, it, it either you're lying or you haven't been paying attention to the people that you know. Everybody knows somebody, but. When it comes to a prion disease, I mean, before tonight, I would imagine that two-thirds of us had no idea what a prion actually was. You know, so to to say that I I knew what it was, look, I'd heard of it. Okay, what does it do? Uh, it was in a news story I read about 10 years ago. So, I mean, so it's not, it's not dominating the social commentary. So... I can't imagine, oh, excuse me, I can't imagine that it gets any kind of a play when it comes to research. And it definitely doesn't get any kind of attention when it comes to someone's death certificate. Other than, you know, I know it, there's been a couple of cases in neighboring Wisconsin, and these were back in the early 2000s where people that um, were big hunters would go and they'd go out, they'd, they'd have these big parties where they'd hunt a whole bunch of different things. Then they'd come all get back together, come back. They'd have a basically a big party. They'd eat a whole bunch of different things, a whole bunch of different animals. And then within a year or so after that, a whole bunch of the people that were there started to develop these weird neurological symptoms. And then a bunch of them died shortly thereafter. And it turns out that it was it was the, the, the Crutzfeld variant that they got. But because it had been so long, they could not pinpoint where it came from. You know, there was no, nobody had a record of Bob ate this deer and that's where he got it from. Because again, through my research, you can get this from a squirrel. You know, a squirrel can have this. Um, a fox can have this. A deer can have this. An elk can have this. A goat can have this. A sheep can have this. A cow obviously can have this. Um, most of your um, domesticated animals, say so your cats and your dogs, don't seem susceptible to it. So you're probably not going to get it from your cat. Um, but for some reason, pretty much anything in the wild, it's possible. If you decide to kill it and eat it and either consume the brain, which I don't know why you do, because it doesn't seem like it would taste good, um, or you just have poor butchering practices. And I know a lot of guys that hunt, and they're all good guys, but a lot of them do shit that's pretty slapdash. So... Uh, I often wonder if, you know, all this tasty jerky that you laid out for me was or was at one point not covered in spinal fluid because you were in a hurry, you know? So um, 
yeah, again, it, it not something that I worry about on a daily basis, but when I think about it, it makes me want to lay down in a corner and cry because it's it's scary. It's just scary. Now, I, do I think I'm going to die of this? Probably not, but being the person that I am, being the big zombie fan that I am, I mean, I hope if this happens, I hope that I don't die and turn in, at least I turn into a zombie. I because at least that would be something, you know. I just don't want to keel over and die, and that's the end. I want to come back and fuck some shit up if I can. <laughs> well, anybody else? Any thoughts, Megan? Any thoughts on prions? I don't know if I want to eat a burger for a while. <laughs> Truth be told, I don't think I'm going to either. I, I'm not sure I'll go ve vegan, but there's going to be a lot of salads this weekend for sure. Yeah. Mm. But then you can get it from a salad. From a well, that's true. You can get it from a salad. Yeah. Well, great. So. No one's safe. <laughs> no one is safe. Just Chicken. stop eating altogether. Chickens are wild. Uh. You know what bothers me is I'm on a whole bunch of really old farmland. And uh and I I know certain areas that like uh where deer have died and this and that. Um but man, I don't know. I, I it just makes me think and I also have a lot of clay here. Like I'm there's this weird kind of point on the river where like all the stuff on this side that's all hilly it's just like this thick red clay so yeah that's just bothering me i'm just kind of like scanning all of my surroundings right now yeah i know i i i'm i'm like i'm i have plans on like growing crops next year from it well and that's the scariest part and i think I, for me, anyway, because this is such a ultimately in in our overall zeitgeist, it's not something anyone ever talks about. But like I said, I was alive and a functioning human being in the eighties when this when this all started, um, and I can remember, you know, the news stories of semi truckloads of cows, you know. Well, these these cows came from Britain, and you had people offloading cows and shooting them and setting fire to them, you know, just to get just to get rid of the British plague, you know. And then fast fast forwarding to when the ban was lifted, and it was like, oh, the ban's been lifted, and then oh, here's the British cows, and people were doing the same thing. It was wow. nope, British cows, shoot them, burn them. We're not we're not not doing it. I remember stuff in the early 90s when this was going on. Mid-90s was my thing where I remember all of them. So. Wasn't there an uptick in the mid-2000s? Um, so I remember under Bush, there was something. I remember he was president, and then there was like there was an issue with Mad Cow again. Uh, okay, so was there an uptick in like infected cows well no. that destroying cow like they were what well, from my childhood memory um okay so when you got into the mid 2000s there was still a lot going on um and we can we can talk about that um so 
in the middle of 2005, the big ruckus was that there was a case of BSE that was discovered in Texas. Okay. Um, and the big thing there was it was a cow that had lived its entire life in the United States. So it didn't come from somewhere else and it wasn't fed some feed from somewhere else. It had been here and been fed supposedly non-contaminated things its entire life. That was the first case of, we'll call it, you know, true homegrown BSE. It was the first case that was in 2005. So in that case, there were some cattle that were called. Um, probably about nine months later, there was a case in Alabama. Um, and there were some uh, cows called again then. Um, but between those, there was never any, there was never any, anything got to market sort of scenarios. And it was another, I think, five or six years before um, we really had another pop-up of it. And it was in California, and it was a dairy cow. And the big thing there is that it was a dairy cow. And what do, what do dairy cows give us? So, um, but from there, there was not another big pop-up after that. Um, the only other thing that really came on the radar is that by the end of that year, um, Japan issued a complete ban on any beef from Brazil because um, there was a cow that had died, I think it was two years prior to that, that um, reported, reportedly had disease-carrying proteins. Now, they were never identified as prions, but they called them disease-carrying proteins. So effectually, you can call it a prion disease. Um, but after that, there was not a ton of uproar. And for all the research that I've done, most of what we hear about now, um, just in the everyday vernacular, is people that are getting one of these diseases, whether it be crutchfield Yakop, whether it be the variant, um, there's obviously hasn't been any cases of Kuru, um, but um, like the last person that died from the original, um, call it strain that came out of Britain was less than two years ago. So, and yeah. it, it started in the late eighties, you know, the first, the first actual death was in 1995. The first acknowledged death was in 1996, I believe. So, again, depending on your genetics, you know, whether you're an M or a V, or as they prove now, you can be a combination of those two. And there's got to be a million more different genetic variations oh, that probably, but again, to your point, say whether you're completely fine and nothing will ever happen to you. But, but is that somehow related to the same people that get Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. Yeah. You know, yeah. does that mean you're going to get a prion disease? I, I don't know. Not a researcher. Not well, a I mean, well, the other thing is like they, they've been having a squirrely time trying to pinpoint the exact mechanism of Alzheimer's. And, and what if it is a genetic predisposition to a type of prion disease? 
And that's that's the main thing, because there's the whole thing with the uh, amyloid plaque and all of that. But it seemed like that was some shoddy research that was meant to issue a drug out. But this this whole thing makes me think like, I don't know, maybe there's a pathway there. No, I'm just wondering if if Alzheimer's could possibly be. uh, I don't know, something related to this. That's all. Well, every everything that I see in the research and everything that's current says that Alzheimer's is a prion-like disease. Now, have they gotten to the root cause of it? Uh, they haven't, but a lot of this ultimately still, still backs up to you have a disease that comes in, takes over protein production, turns it into something that it's not, leaves deposits in the brain, affects neurological function, ultimately causes death. Now, I think if people were to stand up and say, hey, Alzheimer's is a prion disease, the the sad fact is I think people would go, well, that's mad cow disease. What are you talking about? And people wouldn't take it quite as seriously, which is probably why they don't, someone doesn't stand up and wave a flag and say, this is what it is. Um, But I, I think honestly, only time will tell. And it's like a lot of other diseases when you start tying things together and you start making connections. I mean, maybe that's the place where we figure it out. I wonder if they took the average Alzheimer's patient and it took like a spinal tap of the fluid and then injected it into lab animals. If some neurological disorder would manifest after that, I don't know how you would test that. You obviously couldn't do that to people, but, um, Man, that's that's it's fascinating. It's just disturbing, but it also like it, the, all of this kind of screams to me that this most likely is like especially if it's some small strand of protein kind of error. Uh, it, it seems like it's ancient, like, and we're just now developing like the vocabulary and and the way to identify mm-hmm. it. Because who knows what? Like, I don't know. Uh, did Genghis Khan have like a some some domesticated uh you know farm animals and something happened and then they uh, and they, they like burned them all or whatever and then moved on and nobody you know it was just a thing like who who knows how many times this is this kind of thing has popped up um throughout history no i think you're absolutely right man and just with i think it when it comes to our our, our pop culture vernacular and then how people are just living their lives. I think Alzheimer's because how many, how many people, I mean, uh, uh, Rosalind Carter, what did she die of? She just, she died of dementia just a week yeah. or so ago. Um, so it, it, it amazes me that we don't somehow tie these things together. And I suppose I'm foolish if I think that there's nobody out there that is researching this. I just don't know. I don't know what kind of money it gets. And the reason I think it probably doesn't get a lot of money is that if you tied something like dementia or Alzheimer's to the amount of beef that Americans eat, it would murder our cattle industry. It would just bring it to its knees. Um, Because that's, I mean, for a long time, that's what it did in Britain. It it brought the it brought their cattle economy to its knees. There was nothing for the longest time, um, and even now it's still trying to struggle to come back. There's nobody grows up in Britain wanting to be a cattle farmer because there's a ghost that follows it everywhere. Um, 
So, I mean, if you were to get go on TV and say, people, researchers have linked Alzheimer's disease to, to eating beef as a child. Tomorrow, uh, your your the meat section in your grocery store would yeah. close. McDonald's would be out of business. Wendy's would be out of business. And uh, every steakhouse and whatever. So, I mean, there's a lot of socioeconomic reason to not say it out loud. Like my, the, I, I have a, I, I don't like, and I, I don't know. I mean, obviously I don't know what cause causes uh, proteins to misfold or if it's, I don't know, just random, just all the particles that are in reality, it's something, go, uh, uh, the entropy, eventually something goes wrong. Um, but I've never liked like um, just huge factory farming. It, it It's like, I get it. You, I mean, going down i mean people all around here wouldn't be able to get food like nobody nobody would know how to get food just in my area and i'm in a relatively rural area uh kind of close to town but it's like uh thinking about that and what that i've always thought that like kind of um decentralized local farming should make a comeback because it seems like our monocrop agriculture is coming to a expiration date and then you have just the amount, the, just the massive amount of uh, horrific living conditions that uh, animals and diseases can propagate in. It's just always been kind of creepy. I, the, it, it, like going to a local farm is great and all, but it really you you take a hit in your wallet. Uh, uh, getting some like beef, you know, is like top tier. Uh, well, see, and for me, I'm always willing to take that hit because I I love the idea of supporting a local farm. I've always loved that idea. There's the realist in me, this little voice that says, so what advantage does this centralized farming have over the decentralized farming? And the only real advantage that I can see is the regulation. Now... I'm typically not a fan of regulation. I'm typically government hands off. There is a point where as a farmer, I know that things like testing and things like that cost me money to me provide little value other than, oh, this maybe this one was sick. I'm going to toss it. But I never had to do that before. So what difference would it make now? Um, but it's all under the umbrella of preventing things like a prion disease outbreak. So I understand it. Yeah. But it's, uh, but I'm so hard pressed to like, I don't want to put that cost onto the local farmer because they couldn't bear it. They would go broke. Um, and I don't like government regulation because I don't like government regulation. But this is one of those rare times where it's like, hmm, maybe, maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's yeah. okay. You know, maybe I can yeah. subject myself to because I've bought, I have bought, I've bought quarter and half cows from local farms. Mm. I've bought, um, my neighbor and I went in together on a pig and my neighbor went and shot it himself, you know? So there was no regulation in that. It was, here's your meat, yeah. you know? Um, and I much prefer that because I think it's simple. I think it cuts out the middleman. I think it maximizes the profit to the farmer and it minimizes the expense to me but there's always that thought in my head it's like yeah <laughs> what did this what did this thing get into before it got to my house 
and I and I don't know. So that's the part I think that's going to keep swirling around my head. Like, well, I, I mean, just oof. just this talk is valuable to me because, like, if Western civilization falls, uh, not saying it will, but uh, I'm not a hunter. Like, I I know how to kill something, but I'm not a hunter, and so knowing to make sure that I'm keeping the spinal column and and head intact while i remove meat and organs that's like that seems like a pretty nifty thing to know if things got to that point um all you have to know is uh, i don't know my mind's just spinning with like contain what what can i what can i do if you if you truly want to butcher an animal for your own consumption there's some very basic things you have to know you have to understand primals you have to understand guts or the gut sack and its removal without contamination and then beyond that you just have to have you have to understand what constitutes meat and what is not meat and on just about any animal it's pretty damn straightforward you know mm -hmm. um if it's a bird breasts wings thighs legs you know if it's a if it's a mammal you've got chest muscles back muscles leg muscles if you're super hungry neck muscles but like for a lot of that stuff from the shoulders up you can just stay away from it unless you want to put the head on the wall yeah just yeah, stay away from yeah. it the rest yeah. of it is so far away from what we're talking about that unless you shot it and you got it through the spine and that's that happens sometimes you don't have to worry about that cross-contamination it's 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 proper processing expedient processing and then honestly proper disposal of what's left that's you know, it's not, it's not complicated. I can, I can process most things. Uh, I'm not an expert by any means, but anything from a squirrel, a fish, a deer, a hog, I can process most of it. Um, it it's, there's just a lot of common sense that goes into it. And uh, it's the thing that always gets me. And especially when we talk about this whole prion thing, when you talk about a side of beef, right? When you see a side of beef, the head is removed, the hawks are removed, and it's cut down the middle. Okay, that's what a hanging side of beef looks for. Well, when you cut it down the middle, what else are you cutting? Yeah. So mm. you're, cut, you're cutting all the vertebrae and you're cutting the spine. So that's the part that's made me start to rethink the, what should I actually buy? And is the glorious prime rib that I make on Christmas actually worth it. <laughs> Man, I don't know. I got to be more careful. Like I, uh, uh, we were hiking and off the, uh, like kayaking, hiking up a hill, ton of farmland. And uh, I just kind of stumbled across a bone in, in the sediment. And I was like, what? And obviously I'm going to dig it up. And, uh, and now the, the, I just didn't know, like when okay before all of this i pictured prions as more of a uh a fleshy it, it you know it, there can be cross contamination now but now now that i'm absorbing all of this but i was picturing like more or less uh things within uh like wet tissue and then once it was dead and, and especially like burned or something or rotten away, it's gone. Like the thing that is very disturbing to me is, is staying in the soil, getting in the groundwater, getting in the leaves and the grass and the whatever. 
the fact that it, this doesn't break down like anything I've ever heard of. It's it's like a forever chemical, but it's worse. <laughs> yes, there are documented cases of brains stored in formaldehyde. The longest one I saw was like 38 years. And the prions, once the brain was dissected and put under a slide, the prions were still there and they were still trying to produce these plaques by reforming themselves. They were still trying to do it after close to 40 years in a jar of formaldehyde. Man, well, it goes back to what you were talking about. Like, if this could be leverage, like, you know how we figured out, you know, those burls on trees that, I mean, CRISPR uh, essentially came from that. I mean, uh, us understanding how viruses hijack what uh, what uh, a cell is doing and then repurposes it with new information. Like it, it, the way we leveraged that to genetic modifying to where it's uh, uh, like become way simpler. I can't help but think that there's some template within this weird thing that, that could be used for good. But at the same time, it just sounds like un, it sounds like so much worse to me than like a, a bioweapons lab. Like, like the old thing of like something leaking out of a bioweapons lab. This this seems so worse because it just doesn't go away. <laughs> well, I mean, ultimately, a prion is if you look at today's like today's society, a prion is the equivalent of the Chinese Communist Party and the way that the Chinese Communist Party does things. Mm-hmm. Um, they infiltrate a society. They take the people of that society and over the course of years and decades, make them slow and stupid and sloppy and ultimately take over. That's yeah, what's having this conversation the other day. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we, we, we had the TikTok conversation already. We did. Yeah. Yeah. But, but that's the equivalent. And it's, yeah. it's again, based on a predisposition, right? Because yeah, like I'm not predisposed to something like TikTok. I'm, it's not going to ever entertain right. me, okay? But there's lots of people that does. I mean, and that's fine, but people often don't understand the repercussions of their acceptance of a thing. Um, and, but that goes back to me and maybe me not understanding the repercussions of my acceptance of my neighbor bringing me over, uh, you know, five, five pound bags of marinated deer jerky to smoke, you know, and I just dig my hands in and I put it on the trays. I drag it out to the smoker. It's out there for four hours. It's done. I'm like, yep, that's done. You know? And then I go off and then I, and then I have snacks forever. Maybe, maybe I've infected myself and I don't know it. And in 40 years, I'll die of Alzheimer's, but it might've been something else. Do you think it's more likely to get it from a farm than the wild? Um, well, obvious, I guess you have the regulation side of it now, even though it's light, it's something. I, I'll be honest. I think it's probably more likely to get it from the wild only because of what I know now about how it can be in the soil and it can be in plants. And, um, but then I would also think that that's those same genetic follies that apply to humans probably have to apply to a deer too. Maybe that deer's dad had it. And yeah. It. So I, so I don't know. So there's so many variables that go into it. It's, it's, it's almost impossible for me, like to mathematically even plot it out. But 
if I were to say more or less, I would say, well, I've eaten meat my entire life. I've eaten deer my entire life. I've eaten wild deer that people have killed and may or may not have uh, observed the best butchering practices. Um, I've eaten uh, pigs that have come off of a farm where butchering practices might have been questionable. So am I more or less? I'd say probably more, but I'm not going to know until somebody scribbles something down on my autopsy report if I insist that it's yeah. done in my will that somebody yeah. checks for a prion. <laughs> the the other thing that bothers me i'm i'm obviously I, I love dogs and cats um uh the thing that bugs me is like their feed so like you know you could go the raw route which mine have kind of a mixture of kibble and some raw food um but there's like almost no regulation on 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 animal food and uh a, a while ago it's one of those things that was going around um I forget what the euthanasia drug was, but it was in it was in detectable amounts in some dog brands. And the the theory is is that there weren't any intentional tainting the food with a, a drug. It was that they were using uh like crude protein from kill shelters and and recycling. Is that I don't know if that how real that is or not. Um but the, the just what i know of how unregulated that whole marketplace is uh yeah i heard the same irritates me i i heard the same thing um and i actually did ask um my local veterinarian about that yeah um about um because my local veterinarian does work with places that have to humanely euthanize animals mm -hmm. because reasons let's just say reasons um and what he told me is that his experience in the place that he works with, those animals are almost always cremated. Okay. Um, so they're not they're not passed off to a secondary market to be used in something like that. My local vet, who is just a fucking saint, the guy is just a fucking saint. I had one of our cats was there today having some dental work done. This guy's just a fucking saint. Um Anyway, what he told me is that from what he knows, it is not common practice to euthanize animals and then send them off to a secondary market to have their meat processed for anything. Usually animals that are injected with those life-ending drugs are cremated. And okay. that's just the end of it. Um, now, are there unscrupulous people that do things? I'm sure. I It, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. Um but I think that just goes back to kind of what you were saying about like how you decide to feed your animals. It's like for my animals here, it's like my dog's food is a hundred dollars a bag, <clears throat> yeah. which is ridiculous. But my dog is also almost 16 years old is mm -hmm. still kicking. She's yeah. got some bumps and some other shit that I can't really explain. And even the vet, she was just into the vet like three weeks ago to get her, call him one of his bladder tightening pills because she's getting a little old. And he's like, you know what? She's like six years past her expiration date. She's got some bumps and shit. If if things get weird, let me know. Otherwise, just enjoy your dog and keep going. You know. Yeah. Just, but I think that is says something to the food that I feed her. Cause like my dog too. If I'm if I if I go to the store and I buy I occasionally will buy a giant like cowboy ribeye, right? 
the bone and everything. I'll trim off the fat. And I, I don't give my dog the fat because I don't think that's good for it. But some of the fat has some raw, really good red meat in it. I'll give that to my dog, raw, you know. And she doesn't ever get the trots or anything from that. She just is like, oh, hell yes, keep it coming, you know. But I think that says something about the quality of what you give your animal, you know. And oh yeah, my 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 wife's wonderful cats that like to come down here and hang out, you know. They, they these two cats, they're they get some wild, like hypoallergenic rabbit based, <laughs> and it's like. But at the same time, it's like they're 12 years old and their biggest vet bill now has been going to the dentist because they had some tartar built up. Yeah. And, you know, so I think that ultimately the quality of what you give to your animal isn't any different than the quality of what you give to yourself. You know, now, like you give yourself the highest quality stuff. You were really regimented about it. Like I'm not. So there's a reason I'm out of shape and my joints hurt. And there's a reason for it, you know, so you just it's. With any of this stuff, and like, I'm going to say this again, I think this prion thing is absolutely fascinating, but it's fascinating to me, and it really tickles my brain. The odds of it happening to me, I think, are fucking slim to none, right? Yeah. But at the same time, in the general umbrella of the world, you know, if if you treat your body like a temple, you're going to get back what you put in. So as I'm sitting here smoking cigarettes and drinking beer, I'm probably going to get what I put in. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I, But I'm okay with that. And that's the whole thing, just being okay with it. If you if you are shovel by shovel digging your own grave or whopper by whopper digging your own grave, be okay with it. If you want something different, do something different. And don't let anybody else in the world tell you that what you're doing is is weird or whatever else. It's like I've, you know, you and I have talked at length about the lifestyle that you live. And when I first heard about it, I'm like, God damn, that's crazy. But then I think about it and it's like, no, it's not crazy. You made a choice and you're observing that choice and that's what you're doing. And when I think about it in those terms, it makes perfect sense. Why not do that? At the same time, I've made a choice, so I'm observing my choice. And that's okay because guess what? We live in the United States of America. You can do whatever the fuck you want, you know? Again. <laughs> and that's what makes it a great place. And if the end of it, if you... If you die of chronic wasting disease, well, shit, what a, what a bitch that was, you know? Uh, yeah. I did it for the views. Uh, well, I definitely did not do it for the views. I did. I, like I said before, if I told you the amount of hours I put into this research, you would probably first first your eyes would get big, then you'd laugh, and then you'd say, "Really? Like really?" But I, but I. I much in the way that you observe your your lifestyle and whatever else um, like I don't put that like level of energy into my lifestyle but I put that level of energy into a lot of things yeah. and with, with something like this I don't do anything halfway I just I don't because I uh, what's the point otherwise you either go you're either all in or you're all out 